All right, everyone, let's call a timeout. You're listening to The Timeout, a show where we speak with leading surgeons about their careers and also some of the key lessons that they've learned along the way. My name's Jason, and on today's episode, we're very lucky to be joined by Professor Robert Jones, who's the director of the Victorian Adult and Paediatric Liver Transplant Unit at the Austin and the Children's Hospitals, and also a professoral fellow at the University of Melbourne. So would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners for those who might not know you or be aware of your work? Well, I'm a surgeon. I'm based at the Austin Hospital and I've been here for the best part of 30 years. So it's a big chunk of my life and uh, I'm getting toward the end of it. So this is going to be a very interesting conversation. Can you take us through, um, you know, your morning so far? A lot of the guests that we've spoken to, Prof Chung, Kate Drummond, etc., they have quite structured morning routines. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you like to start your day? Well, we in surgery tend to have a very structured routine as well. Of course, at the moment with this COVID-19 crisis, it's been dramatically changed. And uh, interestingly, I think we're all finding it quite refreshing. So rather than having to be here at seven o'clock every morning, I can sit at home and do Zoom. In fact, I've done a Zoom meeting every morning this week at about 7 a.m., and uh, followed up with further Zoom meetings or Teams meetings. So it's been a very big change to our routine. And in fact, many ways for the better. It's made us realize, I think, that a lot of what we did, we could do more efficiently, and certainly with a much bigger patient focus, what suits them and what makes life a little bit more easy. But we're not at routine operating. We're, we're not doing routine operating. So that's actually been a dramatic reduction in workload. So there's been a lot of time to sit and reminisce, think, write, uh, catch up with papers and... Uh, and I think in a surgical career, having some time out has actually been very valuable and very worthwhile. So in contrast to the usual routine, which is pretty structured, uh, we've now got a lot of laissez-faire reorganization of our workload that uh, I think a lot of us are enjoying. I think that's why we've managed to sneak in and, and get some time yeah. with you as well. Exactly, to do something something like yeah. this interview, yeah. Is there anything that you're listening to or reading at the moment um, that you'd recommend to other people? Oh, well, I, I like to read a lot. I always have something open, often non-fiction. I'm reading a book about appeasement, which is what happened in the UK in World War II. Churchill, Chamberlain, De Ladier, and the tremendous influence in the UK of trying to stay out of World War II. I've got another book by a guy called Amor Towles. It's called A Gentleman in Moscow. It's a novel, and it's really about an aristocrat during the uh, Russian Revolution. And it's a rather witty, urbane, totally different look at the revolution from the eyes of an aristocrat who has been affected dramatically by what's going on in Russia. What's one thing that you can't live without? Probably, well, certainly books uh, and music, I guess, is the other thing. I'm an avid music listener. Can't play anything and listen to music prolifically, and including in the operating room. What sort of music do you like to put on when you're operating? Well, operating, I've got James Rain, Powderfinger, Beatles, um, Dire Straits, Joan Amatrading, Dido, a very eclectic mix, you name it. If there was one profession outside of surgery that you could try, what would it be and why? Uh, yeah, that is, that's an interesting question. I'd probably try writing, in fact, when I had to put in a request for university. I actually put in for a BA doing English lit and history. In fact, I only changed my mind at the last minute when my father suggested that probably weren't many careers at the end of that. 
So then I signed on, switched really at the last minute, signed on to doing a pre-med course. And that was at the University of... This is Canterbury in, in New Zealand. So you were born in and grew up in New Zealand. My mother's Australian, but my father's a Kiwi, and I was born in Christchurch. New Zealand's a lovely place to grow up, but one of the overwhelming features of New Zealand is that you're very aware of how isolated you were. You're in country at the bottom of the world. Stand on the, the hills surrounding Christchurch, and you look south, and there was the Antarctic. You'd look thousands of kilometres otherwise, South America, thousands of kilometres out of Australia. There's sort of nothing there. So you grew up with this sense of being very isolated and removed from the real world, which was out there somewhere else. So most of the kids I grew up with had a feeling that you had to leave, you know, you really had to escape, you know, to watch those aeroplanes go and think one day I'll be on one. And most people did return, but not everyone. Um, they'd go overseas and never come back. My sister, for example. In fact, all the kids in my family left and most returned, but not everyone. What are your brothers and sisters doing at the moment? I've got two brothers and two sisters. Both my sisters became nurses and, and then nurses had a tradition of going to the UK, you know, working for a year or three or five and eventually, you know, coming home or meeting someone and getting married and coming home or meeting someone and getting married and not coming home, which is what my youngest sister did. I've got a brother who is in Queensland, migrated there and never came back. And another brother who's a computer programmer, but really based in Thailand. So... One of the problems growing up in New Zealand is everyone leaves, so your family dissipates around the world and you don't get to share all those kind of you know lovely family occasions on a regular basis. I was the second, and uh, and so I left. So I did my pre-med in Christchurch, went to medical school in Otago, which is probably Australasia's best university to go to because it's a little bit like an American college. 80% of the students come from somewhere else, so everybody is from outside of town. Everyone's boarding, staying boarding houses or flatting or student accommodation. So it's an extraordinary environment to, to go as a student. Everyone's away from home and uh, playing up. In terms of your childhood, so you mentioned that, that isolation that you felt there. You know, what were you like um, as, a, as a young boy growing up in New Zealand? Despite being in a town, we were on the sort of outskirts of it. It was a very rural upbringing, really equivalent to country kids. Parents' attitude was you sort of disappeared as long as you turned up at 6 p.m. for dinner. They didn't really know where we were. We vaguely behaved ourselves. Did a lot of stupid things um, because there was no mentoring, no parents or the local kids in the neighborhood. It did some really crazy things. It made explosives and no wonder we weren't injured. We had guns, you know, we could shoot. And um, so it was a very rural upbringing on the outskirts of a city in a very small town in a small country on the opposite side of the world to where everything was happening. Were your parents medical? Like, did your, was your family a medical no, background? No, neither of them were my my father was a barber and my mother was a full-time housewife. But my mother and father met during World War II. My father was in the RAF and my mother had joined the Navy, the Australian Navy, and was based in signals operations out of Canberra. She was very talented with Morse code and coding and used to sit and decipher messages. Actually, it was interesting looking back because I realized as I got a bit older, both my parents were very affected by World War II, obviously, but also World War I because my mother's father had landed on the first day in Gallipoli and then gone, ended up in the Western Front and then gone back to Launceston, became a bootmaker and had taken to alcohol in a big way. So I think my mother left home when she was about 19 and joined the Navy as a way of escaping from a father and, you know, escaping from Tasmania, which again is another very small, isolated part of Australia in 1940 or so. You know, from a, from a young age, you said, you know, your, your upbringing, I guess, was maybe fairly relaxed in the sense that it doesn't seem like your parents really imposed too many rules or... That's exactly right. It's probably the opposite of your upbringing, Jason. <laughs> as I say, the parents' attitude was as long as you just sort of stayed out of 
serious trouble. You know, he just disappeared and turned up. So we and I spent my youth with motorbikes and then cars, and I wasted huge amount of time, you know, fixing and repairing. So I'd strongly recommend anyone don't waste time on motorbikes and cars. <laughs> you can waste half your life. Is that is that something that you're still passionate about these well, days, or? Well, I, I'm not going to touch them again. I, you know, I live, live for motor cars and grease and oil, and <laughs> I think it's much better to get some professional to do it for you now. <laughs> Just drive the damn things. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about you, you know, um, Bob Jones, the the schoolboy at the time? So, what, 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 what were you like? A, were you a troublemaker? Were you someone that listened to the teachers? Or you know, I was. I wasn't a troublemaker, but I wasn't very good with authority. And um, uh, I went to a co-ed high school with girls. Um, a big distraction. I was big on sport and not on work. I played rugby, cricket, I ran athletics. So I spent a lifetime really training um, and then continued that right up to university and um, probably should have spent a lot more time with work. I think if you look back at my school reports, it was, you know, needs to try harder, needs to focus, needs to concentrate. <laughs> and, uh, I think when it came to a couple of crucial exams, I remember teachers being quite surprised that I remember actually having to actually do some work toward the end and being surprised that I'd actually done, I passed reasonably well. Well enough to get into medical school? Just I got so I signed on for uh, sort of pre-med, which you know, biology, physics, chemistry, and uh, they weren't my strong points really. So I, I think I got into medical school. I think it was third from the bottom. I, I, you know, we had, a, we had a dumb year, and I was the dumbest at the bottom. So I was really lucky to get in, which I think just goes to show you don't need to get ninety-nine point nine nine. As a high school student, you were someone that was probably more drawn to the humanities than than the sciences. Well, I was at school, and and I kind of, as I thought of going to university to do that, but at the same time, I was also very practical with my hands and made things. You know, we, we as I say, we were repairing cars, stripping motorbikes down, putting them back together. Um, so I was very hands-on with things and enjoyed doing things with my hands. And I think that was, you know, a temptation to go and actually do something practical. And medicine, and particularly surgery, had that bent. I think as an alternative, you know, probably could have gone and become a carpenter or something else. Probably needed to actually do something physical, and uh, and that sort of really fitted surgery. And and when I did start with medicine, I realised very early on that I was cut out more for surgery than as a physician. So was that quite an early decision for you in terms of you know like a, a lot of students like us, we go through medical school not really knowing like we like some things about surgery, we like some things about physicians, we like some things about general practice, et cetera, et cetera. So it was, it was quite clear to you early on that surgery was going to be... No, no, I, I agree with you entirely, Jason. I, I think uh, probably in all my rotations as a you know house officer, junior resident, I, I enjoyed just about everything I did. I did a three-month psychiatry term, which was sort of forced on me, and I didn't want to do it. But it's one of the things I look back on now with great fondness. And I think if you enjoy medicine and enjoy people, it really doesn't matter where you, know, where you end up in training. And I look back and think it isn't so crucial that you get all those key appointments early on. And there are lots of ways of getting to where you want to get at the end. Uh, the important thing is to perhaps you know, take part in what you're doing and whatever part of medicine it can be. And it's probably going to contribute in, in a general educational way to whatever you do subsequently. Because whatever specialty you do, once you start it, you're very narrow, you know, you narrow right down and you get this opportunity to do something general only early in your career. And it's so I spent a lot of time, I spent, you know, years training. I spent two or three, five years more than I needed to if I was just going to concentrate on surgery. 
So I did two years as a house officer, including medicine and surgery and psychiatry, and then knew I had to leave. So we had a visiting professor from the US and I asked him about a job and he said, sure. So I left at the end of second year resident as a second year resident. But during that time, I, during my second year, I did my part one fellowship because by that time I decided I wanted to do surgery. Then went to the US for two years and I had actually applied for the surgical training program and got in. So I had to cho- choose whether I stayed in the US or came back to Sydney which I did, and then did surgical training in Sydney, did all my four years. Did a two-year fellowship in Sydney as well, and then did a fellowship in Bristol in the UK for two years. And while I was there, I was working for an extraordinarily talented surgeon, said so you really have to do something specific rather than you've got to have some other than just general surgery. And uh, uh, so really arranged for me to end up in Oxford uh, in a transplant job, which actually suited me because I had a very broad background by then, particularly in vascular surgery, and I'd had some exposure to transplantation. But I'd pretty much then done about five years of, you know, and a lot of fellowship stuff and had a very broad background. So if we can rewind a little bit, just so we get the timeline clear. So you graduated medical school in... seventy End of 74. And then you did your internship, two years of residency, and then you moved to Sydney for six months, got into the, got into the training program, went to the US for two years, and then came back, did it four years in Sydney, and then two years as a as a fellow, and then two years in Bristol, and then went went to Oxford and did another two years there. It's quite a long and then <laughs> <a> long journey. <laughs> went to the went to Pittsburgh for a year on top of that. So I was about thirty eight before I had a proper job. I think for a lot of you know like medical students or even junior doctors. Now it's um the investment that we have to put into getting onto a particular training program um, is increasing and you know it's becoming more in- increasingly competitive and so you know people are coming in with more research doing more things etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, was there ever a time when you felt like the the time that you would invest into this surgical career path did you ever have doubts about what that would actually turn into? I agree. I think it actually is tougher now than it was. Disadvantage when I was going through was that the, the cutoff point was right at the very end. So you could spend a lot of time invested in wanting to do surgery and not make it, not get in. So they're trying to bring that right back so there's less time wasted. But I think it, it was a little more general and a little more open. And there were other other avenues of you know, getting into surgery. You, know, you could go and do the Irish college exams or you go to the UK get a fellowship there. It was a little less structured um, and a little more flexible. Whereas now it's a much more rigid program and I think very, very competitive. Supposedly fairer, I don't know if it is. It, on paper it's fairer and it stands up to sort of legal scrutiny, which I think is a big issue now. But I think it is a, it's a very tough ask, I think, in a surgical career. So you've really got to want to do it. And I don't think the sort of mucking around and sort of things that I had done would cut the mustard now. I probably wouldn't get accepted with this sort of piecemeal. In some ways, you credit what you call the, the mucking around, you know, the, the general experiences actually, you know, now you said that when you look back on it, your psychiatry rotation, for example, you actually look back on it and you gain a lot from that. Do you think, I guess, as, as medical students, we're quite lucky because we have the opportunity to explore these things while we're still in medical school. Um can you talk a little bit about some advice that you'd give to maybe medical yeah, students? Yeah, I, I think it is a problem because it's, it's a bit like the US system. By the time you come out of medical school, you've got to chosen your path. And that, you know, that's a tough call because you really haven't had a lot of experience. It's, a, it's really wonderful to be able to have two or three years where you can try things out and really decide where you fit. And sometimes that decision about where you fit is based on the people you're working with. 
I think sometimes you end up working somewhere and you just feel part part of this group of particular people you're you know the specialty you're working in and I think that's a really important feeling you know if you feel welcomed and incorporated and part of this group then that's something you want to think seriously about you know maybe in terms of a long-term career the second thing I notice sometimes is occasionally when I was younger you'd get an older physician or surgeon taking an interest in you and probably wanting to give some direction and mentoring but I remember not listening or not hearing that message um, so I think if you're ever working somewhere and you've got an older physician who's sort of interested in your career you really want to take note because really what often they're saying is we think that you would fit into this area where I am, whatever it's, you know, thoracics or medicine or surgery. And uh, and to have somebody sort of guiding you, I think, is extremely valuable. Um, I tended to, I, I remember older surgeon trying to tell me something, which I look back and think he was sort of trying to give me advice on what to do. And I remember it sort of, you know, I ignored everything he said and didn't hear it at all. And I look back and regret it because, uh, you know, someone who's been through this is, you know, it's a very valuable message to be able to pass on how do you think like i think for really all medical students we especially for us you know coming towards the end of medical school as you talk about some of that advice and maybe some of those the sort of comments that suggest you know or maybe you should consider this you know like we we think back and i think we all have those moments um how would you suggest for maybe medical students to follow up or approach seniors on on this issue because as as juniors I, I think we sometimes worry about maybe coming off as naive or we're sort of afraid that we don't really know enough and that we might not be we, we considered seriously i think if you weren't naive and didn't have that feeling it'd be something wrong i think as medical students i remember just overwhelm overwhelmingly feeling how on earth can you learn this you know there's so much to know so much to learn constantly feeling you know behind and and not doing enough work so i think that's universal in medical medical school medical students uh and being made to always be aware of what you didn't know not what you knew so on the, the other point counterpoint of that of course is medical students actually are much more competent than they realize and you could take your average final year medical student and dump him somewhere and he would be able to look after patients quite well although they wouldn't feel confident but they actually could um so I think students tend to concentrate on what you don't know. I don't know if that's still quite as marked as when I was going through. Tend to be overwhelmed by knowledge, not showing where to stop. Where you know, where do you stop learning on this area? Um, so I think that feeling that you have is universal, and I think it would be unusual if you if you were highly confident. I think there'd be something wrong. Let's say that I'm a second year student and I'm I'm interested in transplant surgery or hepatobiliary surgery or or any other type of surgery. Like you know how. How should maybe for the sort of more junior medical students listening to this? How should they how should they pursue that? Interest? I think you have to spend some time in that area now, either as a resident with a, with a, a formal appointment, or as an observer, or you do some research projects. See if you actually like the people that are in that area you're working with. I think that's an absolutely crucial point because you are going to end up with a long working life. And you're going to be working with people in this area for a long time. So I think a really important thing is to think that you're with colleagues that you have an affinity with and you fit in with. And sometimes you just know that. You're working with a group and you feel, this, you know, these, these are my, this is my tribe, this is where I belong. You've, you've got a long working life. You can muck around. You can spend a bit of time sorting this out. I remember one of the physicians saying to me, one of the older physicians when I was quite young, he said, when you 
start your career, when you actually formally have a formal appointment at the end of training, if you start at 32 or 35 or 38, it doesn't really matter. He said, you're going to have to do it for 30 years. So whether you start at 32 or 38 wasn't important. In fact, he felt that if you start at 32, you just flamed out and burned out a little bit earlier. So in many ways, his advice was to me was, go to the United States, muck around a bit. doesn't matter if you're 35 or 38 when you get a proper appointment because you're going to have to still do it for another 30 years. <laughs> and, uh, and that's a long time to keep working. And you can get an opportunity to do these things when you're younger. You can't once you get committed and are in a structured program. Very hard to take time out. I'll just give you an example. My, my daughter, my oldest daughter did medicine after thinking a lot about what she wanted to do and went to the University of Melbourne and then decided she would do emergency medicine and got into the emergency medicine program and commenced training and was sort of doing her equivalent part one. But simultaneously, she'd applied to do a diploma in obstetrics because she just kind of thought it might be fun to try something. So she'd taken six months out of the ED course to do the diploma. And that fitted in quite well with the ED anyway, you know, having an obstetric background. And f- went to the Mercy and just said, this is where I belong. So uh, just had that instant epiphany that th- this, this was the group of people she wanted to work with. So she switched from emergency medicine and switched entirely to ONG and has now graduated. Well, in fact, she's gone off to do, she's actually just finished a fellowship in cancer oncology, gynae oncology, and now sort of concentrating on cancer surgery in, in gynae. So I think you, you have opportunities that come up and uh, you've just got to decide, is that where you belong? I think that, that theme of opportunity and, you know, the sort of, the, in a way, sort of innocuous along, along, along the way and then sort of with only the hindsight that you have now, you look back and you say, oh, those, those were opportunities that I maybe should have taken up. So one of the opportunities that you did take up um, was from your time in the UK when you met... Um, well, actually, it was it was it when you were in Christchurch or, or Sydney that you met um, a surgeon that asked you to think about working in the US for two years in New Zealand as a visiting prof who comes around talks and lectures, you know, in some some of being high bar, you know, high powered American hospital, and uh, and it was an extraordinary experience because you're suddenly in the middle of a high powered big American, you know, huge amount of trauma and uh, extraordinary workloads, and you know, starting at six a.m. was the routine start time. You know, on call two out of three days. I went to when I first started work. I went to the hospital and didn't come home for three days. Um, and uh, the key thing I think from going overseas was to realise that even though I'd come from a very small university at the bottom of the world, that we could keep up with these high-powered American guys who'd come out of some really top schools. And uh, and and that was a massive learning curve for me because there's no doubt you feel you know these these big hotshot hospitals are full of big hotshot physicians and surgeons and that you might have trouble staying with them. So that experience was incredibly valuable for me um, and made me realise that, you know, Australia and New Zealand graduates are incredibly capable and can hold it with the best if they want to. In terms of steep learning curves, so um, I guess it's particularly of interest to us now, slightly older medical students about to enter the workforce, um, that there are times when as you said there's there can be a steep learning curve particularly as you're transitioning to something new um i'm wondering in 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 your career um 
well, I guess this is this is a two part question. The first one is: um, Has there ever been a time when there's been a very steep learning curve, and you've sort of questioned, you know, like, do I want to even stay to pursue medicine or surgery? And the second one is: um, When you're in those situations, I mean, even you know, some of the surgery that you do now is particularly technically challenging and, and complicated, and probably much beyond what we we really understand at at a medical student level. How do you navigate around that challenge? Um, you know, how do you make yourself feel better or actually, you know, solve that that problem of that learning curve? Interesting question, Jason. Look, I think one of the things in medicine no one ever talks about, and they should, and that is uh, making a mistake. Now, this is in medicine, but particularly in surgery or interventional medicine. And it doesn't matter who you are, you will make a mistake. And no one really teaches people how to cope with making a mistake. And no, there should be classes in it. It's coping with failure that actually is the key to surgery. It's being able, everyone can cope with success. You know, well done, Jason, pat you on the back. But actually coping with failure is what you've got to stand up, get back and do it again. And you've got to front up, be honest to the family, to the patient, to yourself about what happened. And so dealing with that is an enormous challenge. And I think very early on in surgery when I realized that I had to make a decision, you know, do I, can I stick with this? Can I put up with that? So in surgery, it's very obvious who did it. And um, you were the surgeon, you're responsible. You can't get away from that. So living with that responsibility is something that is incredibly important. And you have to make an early decision as whether you want to do that and carry that load. And just watching my daughter sort of discovering that as she's just out in her early consultant, early consultant position, realizing the stress that it, you know, it is coping with surgery. And, and if you put a scalpel into someone, it doesn't matter how superficial it is, from the moment you've done that, you're sort of obligated and committed. And everybody knows who's responsible. And the most important thing is knowing yourself and being able to own up to that. So it's a little bit of an obtuse answer to your question, Jason, but I think, um, so that's a very key thing. If you want to do surgery, you, you need to think about that. And then lifelong coping with that and living with mistakes. Now, those mistakes might be simple, a wound infection or something leaking that you can fix, but you may end up making a mistake that results in death and, you know, an error. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I'd chosen another path. And that can be extremely stressful. And you need to think about how to deal with that personally without taking up too much alcohol. A little bit of alcohol is all right, but not too much. (laughs) So, so I, I guess in, in essence, your answer is that grappling with that steep learning curve of medicine, that perhaps it's this intrinsic acceptance of the fact that you're going to get things wrong that actually helps you to navigate around those challenges. I, I, I think you have to accept that when you start. Personally, I've, I've loved the challenge of new things. And in fact, perhaps it's a disadvantage because I, I, once you've got something sorted, you know how to do it, and it became routine. I was, looking, I was always looking for something new and different. And transplantation fitted into that because when I got involved with liver transplantation, it really wasn't a relatively early period of, of its sort of clinical expansion, and people were still working out how to do this operation. This was in the, the late 70s, wasn't it? Yeah, this is in well, the mid-80s, really. Mid-80s, when, okay. Because it really didn't become widespread until the mid-late 80s. And, uh, but even at that stage, our criteria for success was just keeping the patient alive. The marker of real success was a one-year survival. So you were dealing with patients, many of whom were going to die on the operating table or perioperatively, and uh, you know, usually under pretty strenuous conditions, blood loss, and a lot of, you know, quite traumatically. You have to have a certain robustness to kind of cope with that. 
And uh, But you are surrounded by a team of people who are similarly minded. So anesthetists and all the support team, you know, we're usually like-minded and wanting to work out how to do this procedure and how to get it to work. And uh, I was also involved in the pioneering of laparoscopic surgery here in Australia. And again, that was fairly revolutionary and uh, not, not so much quite as high risk, but medical legally risky and that there was no precedent and we just sort of got it up and running and created it out of nothing and patients went ahead and had these procedures when our experience was zero in fact very early on i remember one of the early hernia lap hernia patients in fact the first lap hernia patient saying well how many how, you know we talked to him into having this operation i said how many of these have you done like this is in the waiting room we said well we've got to own up you're the number one you know you're the first I remember him saying, oh, shit. <laughs> he went ahead. but uh, uh, So I've, I've enjoyed the challenge of new and challenging things. And I think, so in a, in a career of any sort, I think taking on new challenges is rewarding and fulfilling. And, uh, and I, I think it makes you live longer, probably. In terms of that, that idea of innovation and, and trying new things, so as you were coming through and, you know, you'd, so you developed, um, I've got it, I've got it written down here in terms of your, your, your sort of own history. So you did the two-year fellowship in Oxford um, under Professor Peter Morris. Yes, he's an Australian, trained at Royal Melbourne. And that was in renal transplantation. And then when you were at Cambridge, um, when you visited Professor Roy Kane at Cambridge, you became interested in, in liver transplantation. And as you said, that at that time, it was a developing fields quite nascent you know it wasn't really widespread and as you mentioned the the sort of the knowledge and the, maybe the technology and the, the way that we sort of managed those patients was still in its in its uh, in its infancy really it was yeah very pioneering um so you mentioned as well at this time that uh, you you moved to pittsburgh and you worked under professor thomas starzel who was one of the the pioneers of kidney transplantation and liver transplantation um you know for for medical students now, we, we aren't necessarily in an era where these sort of advances in treatment and things are as, are as obvious anymore. Um, you know, the, the focus these days is shifting towards genetic and molecular medicine and personalized medicine and, and even preventative health. I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about your experiences with Professor Starzl in particular and maybe what things you, you learn from him or, or, you know, what sort of role he played in, in your life. Well, look, he just individually, he, he was an extraordinary individual. He, he probably should have won a Nobel Prize. Uh, but Tom Starzer was someone who really did push down brick walls. And so there were only two types of medical people in the world who knew Tom Starzer and those who loved him and those who hated him. So he had a lot of enemies because he just pushed, pushed over things and trodden on things to get where he did. He was an extraordinary workaholic, had a photographic memory, pioneering an extraordinary individual. And uh, when I was working in the UK and interested in liver transplant, there were only four centres in the world. I visited all four of them and had the opportunity to actually get a job with Starzl. And they were doing extraordinary numbers because there weren't any units really. We were doing up 600 transplants a year. So it was just round the clock. Uh, so you could go there in a very short time, pick up a lot of experience. So he, as an individual, was pioneering. He, he really worked out how the kidney transplants should be done and pretty much the technique that is now used every, by everyone. Uh, immunosuppression, drugs, and the surgery and, main, and, and the 
care of patients with liver failure and liver disease, end-stage liver disease. He was an extraordinary pioneer, and it was a great privilege to work with him and a group of people working there who all were like-minded and part of this great experiment, and huge numbers of patients who were involved, many of whom were going to die and knew they were going to die because the risk of getting through this operation back then was still maybe 70%, you know, 30% death rate. So it was an extraordinary time to be there, and uh, and I learned a lot, a lot about human physiology, and aesthetic physiology. Liver transplantation is probably biggest contributor to general surgery has been management of blood loss. When I was a resident in training in Sydney, if you lost a blood volume, you know, five liters, you were, you know, your chances of dying were pretty high. If you lost two blood volumes in general surgery, you're probably going to die on the operating table. Well, in liver transplantation, the first seven patients all died that Starzl did all of blood loss. And he had a hiatus about in the late 60s, 70, working at, well, if we're going to keep them alive, we have to work out how to do this. And so liver transplantation really sorted out how you can have massive blood loss and actually resuscitate patients and keep them alive. So that was one of the extraordinary learning curves that for me was just this general physiology and anesthesia that were crucial to getting these patients up. Incredibly challenging and exciting to be involved in it. I've got an editorial snippet from the Medical Journal of Australia in 1984. You know, it's essentially talking about transplantation medicine. And in fact, it's actually a bit of a, a critique. Some of the bolder points are why the Federal Minister of Health, who has ready access to the best medical advice in the land, should join with the gullible public who unfortunately believe the propaganda put out by the surgical virtuosos is a puzzle. You know, the, the, the medical profession in Western nations must act to curb the extravagant behavior of its superior technologists whose manual dexterity has far outgrown their vestigial senses of judgment. So these are quite quite strong critiques. It's a very powerful, well, very negative editorial. Yeah, I'm wondering, particularly with transplantation surgery, that there's a very strong medico-legal and also ethical flavor to the work that you do. How do you... Well, that, that, that attitude in, 19, in the 80s was common. Um, in fact, there were many physicians and many institutions completely opposed to transplantation, particularly in children, where it was seen to be experimental and, uh, you know, experimenting on children. Um, so it was driven by a very small number of people um, who had very particular and obvious reasons. And, for example, we started transplantation here in the late 80s and one of the Melbourne's most senior hepatologist, Arnold Smith, came over and asked, would we be prepared to do children? And we said, yes. So the third patient we transplanted here at the Austin was a nine-year-old child. And I remember asking Arnold why would his institution was opposed to transplantation. And he, he said, well, I've sent six kids away and no one survived. He jokingly said, you can't do any worse than what's happened. Uh, but at that time in Melbourne, there was no support for So he was extremely brave and uh, physician really to take on his institution. So I'm still going to transplant these kids, even though I have to send them away. So it was a, a very, you know, it was a very controversial procedure to do, very expensive. And what drove it finally were patients who were getting, asking for money from the government to go overseas to have the procedure done and particularly children, and quite a few Australian kids had gone to the US particularly or UK for transplantation. And that's really what finally drove it here in Australia. I'm interested a little bit more about those early days. You mentioned um, with Tom Starzl that the first seven patients all died. Some people would see that as 
this is essentially him driving his own idea, that his belief that transplantation is right and it should be done. Um, and I guess in hindsight now, maybe it probably is the right thing to do um, now that we know how to do it properly. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how, like at the time, personally, as someone who was involved with transplantation, how did you, how did you keep going when everyone was telling you that what you thought was the right thing to do was actually not, not the right thing to do? I think what drove it, Jason, was particularly the children who had biliary atresia, who are the dominant group. And when you die of biliary atresia, it's a miserable, slow, prolonged death of a child with a large component of malnutrition and cachexia and starvation. So to see a dying child, one-year-old, five-year-old, eight-year-old, with something that you could do something about if you could just solve this problem, if you could just solve that problem. In fact, there are about 50 problems you had to solve. And Stiles all worked out how to do them one by one. And once they had success, they realized that this operation was remarkable. I mean, probably of all the transplants to have, a liver transplant is probably the most dramatic because it, uh, when liver fails, just about every other organ system in the body fails and is linked to it. And to see the recovery of these children was just remarkable. Um, so I think what drove it was the fact that these children were going to die and they're going to die miserably. And just the driving force for Stasel and others pioneers was, you know, we wanted to see if we could do something about this. I, I actually think now it would be impossible to do that. I mean, the ethics in, in the 60s and 70s were sort of non-existent. You didn't, you really, <laughs> and that's why Stasel was very unpopular because a lot of people regarded him as a cowboy and, uh, you know, basically a killer of children. So he had a tremendous amount of, negative publicity and press, and uh, which have probably affected him ultimately not getting a Nobel Prize. I think it's quite interesting because, and I mean, this is probably not within the scope of this particular podcast, but, you know, there are surgeons today as well, Australian surgeons who might also be regarded as, you know, cowboy or quite cavalier in their approach. Um, and, you know, for, for, for me, what I think what's interesting is that the medical field to, to continue to advance requires people who will push the limits of, of what we do, but at the same time, you have to balance that against the, the risk that you're posing to patients. In terms of that pioneering or that leadership position that liver transplantation and transplantation surgery had as you were going through the training, you also have been involved with leading a number of different initiatives, and one of them in particular was the setting up of the Victorian Adult and Paediatric Transplantation Service, which you started in 1988. Can you talk to us a little bit about just your experience with that, I just very, very generally? Well, I, it wasn't just me. I, there were some pioneering doctors here at the Austin who wanted to do liver transplantation and wanted to provide that service here in Victoria. And the driving course was Professor Ken Hardy, who was Professor of Surgery at the time, Ken and big team here had applied to the government for permission to deliver transplantation and become a national centre, but hadn't got, hadn't been accepted, and then just decided they're going to do it anyway or set it up and do it. So it was not me who's really set up the basic the infrastructure here. That it was the Austin Hospital who were committed to doing. It was a really big risk from the institutional point of view because there wasn't a lot of support for it. Um, it was going to cost a lot of money, and there was a lot of negative downside if it didn't work out or patients died. So there's some very brave people here at this institution and uh, within the system here and the University of Melbourne who actually tackled this and took it on. And then when they decided to commit to it, they said, well, we better get a team together. And that's where I became part of it. 
So when Ken Hardy visited me in the UK and said, would I be interested in coming back here? I actually came out to have a look because I said, I knew there were a lot of hospitals that wanted to do liver transplantation, but I knew a lot of them would never do it, wouldn't finally ever get organized enough to do it. And and I came and looked at the Austin and realized that actually this was an institution that probably, you know, did want to do it and could do it and probably would. And that was a very important part of my decision to come here um, because it you know, wasn't up and running when we start, when I came. Liver transplantation is in and of itself a very time-consuming procedure. And um, as you mentioned, there was a lot of, you had to deal with a high workload at the time. I'm wondering how, you know, did you have a family or a partner at that stage? How did you manage that side of your life? Well, I, I was married. My wife luckily was American. So that was part of the reason why I went to America as a second year. And uh, But my wife was a teacher and gave up an awful lot because she, you know, I think we had 17 moves in four countries and uh, pretty much impossible to you know, restart. She did work. Um, my wife worked in uh, Milwaukee when I was there in some pretty tough schools, you know, metal detectors getting through the front door. And she tackled this with a great aplomb and reserve. So the other difficulty now, of course, with women and men working, it's very hard for one partner you know, to do what I did. You really need a partner who's going to give up their career. And that's an enormous sacrifice, So, which my wife continually reminds me. Um, <laughs> um, so there's to be payback at some time. But I'm watching my oldest daughter, both her partner and her both medical, and it's quite difficult because, you know, no one can just pick up and leave and go overseas for 12 months. So I think that's an added difficulty in career structure now that I didn't have. It was very flexible with my wife being able to just lug, you know, lug the kids around with me and with her. I guess they got to see the world a little bit as well along the way. Yeah, and they did end up with a lovely English accent you know, <laughs> for a while. <laughs> They've lost it when they came back. So since since setting up the, the transplantation service, so it's expanded not just from adult but also pediatric. You're doing pediatric liver transplants now. Is that, is that, that's at the children's hospital. It's interesting because we did the first dozen or so children here at the kids. In fact, at one stage we had a five-year-old and I think a three-year-old in our ICU, in the original ICU here. And at that point, the children's hospital really were forced into, you know, admitting that really they were going to have to do this. So we did our first paediatric transplant at the children's hospital in 1996. And the, and the children's hospital clearly, you know, run with that and, uh, you know, have a very supportive infrastructure now. Um, and it's a great privilege for us as adult surgeons to be involved with paediatrics. Um, you know, to go down, it's a, it's a very different world dealing with children. And as an adult surgeon, to be able to operate on children is an extraordinary honor and privilege and uh, and all the team here involved you know really enjoy it so it's it's a huge plus for an adult program to actually be involved in i guess so in terms of the timeline so you were working so you became the director of the victorian transplantation service in 1988 and you've been working in that position ever since yeah i do i wasn't it, my, the appointment came a bit later. We sort of came back. I think the hospital wanted to see if this really going to happen, and it was you know some years later when they gave me the official title, um, which is sort of rather nominal because we've really got a very big team who all did their part independently, really. So our anaesthetic colleagues ran with it, our ICU colleagues ran with it, uh, social work, all the supportive structure, allied health, our nursing staff, our liaison nurses, everybody took up the task of how to run this. It's not just a surgical endeavour. And particularly our physicians, who we were very dependent on, because they really look after the patients and um, 
look after them beforehand and then look after them afterwards. It's a very medical specialty. So if you surgery and you like medicine, it's not a bad specialty. You've got to know a fair bit of medicine in transplantation. In, in 2010, I think you gave you were a witness in front of the, the was it the, the the Supreme Court of Victoria or something, and you gave evidence to support a more structured program like the the whole organ donation program that exists now. That you know. Is- well, it's interesting that transplantation for most of my working career was across as a cottage industry that didn't fit any of the standard medical administrative structures. So we really had no oversight and no admin and nothing really applied to us. And I'll just give you a little example. Around 1990, we decided we would be able to pick up organs in New Zealand or interstate. So we'd fly around the country without licensing, without registration. We'd go to New Zealand without licensing, registration, (laughs) pick up organs, operate in foreign hospitals and fly home. There was no paperwork because you could bring in human organs. If you brought in an animal organ, there was a huge amount of paperwork, agricultural and fisheries and things. But with human organs, we could just fly around. Uh, So transplantation sort of bypassed a lot of the standard procedures. There was no one in the health department who knew anything about transplantations. If you rang up to discuss something, there was sort of no expert down there. So for the first 20-odd years, we were able to really sit in our corner and set up a structure, and we really could create something ourselves that suited the transplant programs. And um, it's only relatively recently that we've had to come under the umbrella of sort of formal, more restrictive structures that are required to really run a successful program. It was really transplantation coming in from being a cottage industry into the mainstream. And we owe a lot to Kevin Rudd, who was Prime Minister around that time. And uh, he had had a homograft aortic valve inserted. So he, um, it's a human valve. And uh, was very sympathetic and uh, with a lot of pressure on him, put, pumped a lot of money into a cent- into really creating a centralised structure for organ donation. Because all of this, of course, totally depends on cadaveric organ donation, largely. And, and there really was no formal structure. Each state had a kind of a goodwill system and a voluntary system of organ donation. And this was the first attempt of federal government and the, in, with the state governments to actually set that up in a proper defined manner. And really from that moment on, we've, we've headed down a much more structured and been incorporated into mainstream medicine and medical administration. I think that that point of, you know, the fact that transplantation medicine is someone has to give up an organ for someone else to receive it as a, as a recipient. Um, in and of itself, I think that raises a number of moral and, and ethical questions. And, you know, in terms of a lot of the patients that come in, often problems with like you know, alcohol abuse and those sorts of things. How do you approach the trolley question, you know, of who should get the, the liver and who shouldn't? Like, I'm just wondering, how do you make that decision? Well, it, it's, it's a really good question, Jason. And th- th- these are, the organs really, I mean, the question is who owns the donated organs? And they really belong to Australia and Australians. So it's really the Australian public who decided what we would do with them. And if you go and have, ask the average Australian, they often have quite obvious views about if I'm going to donate my organs, who would get them? And sometimes they can be bigoted or biased. So you have to have a, you know, a bigger picture view. You can have a very utilitarian view. If you know, you're going to take my organs, they've got to go where they're going to have the maximum benefit. You can take a sort of religious view. There are different ways of looking at it. So we've largely involved the community in those discussions. And alcohol is a key marker. Alcohol doesn't rule you out of having a liver transplant if the feeling is that you've abstained, you are abstained and you have a reasonable chance you will remain 
and abstain from alcohol. And it probably only makes up 10 or 15% of the patients who actually have a transplant. Now, that's not the common perception, because the perception in the public is if you've got liver disease, you probably drink, when in fact, there are a huge number of causes of liver disease that are nothing related to alcohol. But alcohol may actually may aggravate a lot of them. So alcohol plus a disease is going to be you know, quite catastrophic. So the decision who to transplant is largely based on what we would think the average Australian would support. For example, if you have a paediatric donor, nearly all Australians believe that a paediatric donor should go to another child and only be used in an adult in extreme circumstances. Um, most adults are very happy with the idea that an adult graft should, could be cut down for a child and that the remaining chunk of that graft go to an adult with a slightly increased risk. In other words, that children come first. So there are a lot of very practical and common sense uh, decisions as to who should get organs allocated. And as a general rule throughout Australia, we rank patients according to how sick they are and the risk of dying. So the priority on the list is based, you could come in on Monday and be on top of the list on Tuesday um, and immediately supplanting someone who is not as sick. In the same way that you could be halfway down the list on Monday, but the top of the list on Wednesday if something happened to you. And that's a utilitarian argument. We know that's results in the best survival and that's supported by the public so basically the answer to your question is it's a really a public public own the organs own them public have given the organs and we really and they are transplanted really according to what is felt to be the public and the public are involved in those decisions i guess an interesting situation might be and this probably is something that you may might have encountered how do you tell a patient that they're not sick enough to be important in place at the top of that list we, we have that discussion with everybody and patients are very aware of that and generally they all agree with it um, they like the idea that they perhaps aren't quite as sick as needing a transplant tomorrow but they also like the idea that if they did get very sick very quickly they would have a very high chance of being transplanted so it actually is it's got some you know, patients have some interest in that process as well and some benefit from it so in general it's quite an easy discussion to have and if you discuss with the patients, you know, how, how else might you structure this? I mean, you occasionally get someone who would like to, you know, go to the top of the list, you know, come in on Monday and be on the top of the list immediately. Um, but nearly everyone accepts that that's a very rational and sensible approach. Do you think that sticking to the rational and, and sensible, if you like, principles-guided way of thinking about these decisions helps you in some ways to reconcile with the fact that Sometimes, well, it, it's actually not that uncommon that a lot of these patients, while they're waiting, might might die. The, we, the death rate runs you know, between 10, 10 or so percent. The more donors you have, the fewer people will die on the list, obviously. Um, so patients are aware of that. Although interesting, and we have that discussion, actually. I, however, most patients, and I would be the same, tend to think it won't happen to them. You know, I, you know, I will get transplanted. Uh, but the reality is not everyone will make it uh, to transplantation. So, again, it's part of the acceptance of this process and part of the education. And we tend to be very subtle about discussing with patients. You, you don't push that point, particularly if no one wants to talk about it or think about it. But very early on in the program, we decided we should have a pastoral care a chaplain. So we had a hospital chaplain appointed to our unit specifically just to deal with patients because essentially they were all dying. They're dying on the waiting list and they 
moderate chance of dying before being you know before transplantation during transplant after so dealing with that was is a very non-medical issue that was very important so you know today you still are the director of the the transplantation service obviously liver transplantation in terms of the the moral and ethical side it's it carries its own complexities wondering on the on the practical side the the teams that you work with are multidisciplinary and often really really big and you have to deal with a lot of complexity as as a leader um or, or someone who's in a leadership position how do you manage that complexity jason that's a really good question it's something i actually spent a lot of time thinking about to run a really successful program you need everybody to be part of the team and they come from multiply complex and different specialties so a team what does a team mean well it means keeping those people together in some format and using their experience and having them all feel they belong and have a role so i think running a successful team probably results in another 10% survival rate it's extremely important and that that's just survival that doesn't include how people feel about the program and how they're coping with life so a huge part of my role is really just maintaining commitment and enthusiasm and having people wanting to be involved so we don't have people who are just rostered on and you know the people have made some concrete decision to be part of this team and actually be involved in it and committed to it and the patients benefit enormously from it so I, that's a really astute question and something that I spend quite a lot of time working on what what do you think you've learned um over the past 20 25 years working in this position i guess as a, as as a leadership figure within that you know what maybe if there's any particular you know experiences that you can talk about that you've really learned something about maybe yourself or 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 other people well i when i started is yes, when i said you're a director of the there was no training in how to be a director or what does a director actually mean <laughs> so i i learned by default i think um um as i said we were a sort of cottage industry across in the corner and we were really left alone nobody really wanted much to do with us and uh so we really had to set this structure up ourselves what i learned was communication and talking and getting bright capable people was absolutely crucial part so if you got bright capable talented people you really they didn't often need a lot of direction and uh, they would run the program for you so few key people really top quality people would run a top quality program and they would keep employing top quality people and i think that's what we've really had across our program so my role was really just making sure that the people employed and working for us really wanted to be there really knew what they were doing and brought along with them all that enthusiasm commitment that got other people to accompany them i think now if i was doing it I'd have gone to some I would have had some proper formal training and you know what a director actually means. The patient journeys that are in liver transplantation are often very unique. You know compared to and this is not to, this is not to downplay, you know, other surgical specialties but um you know often these patients have very complex medical needs and they have they come from complex situations etc cetera, etc. Cetera. When you think back about all the patients that you've met, were there any particular ones that stand out and when you look at them now of those that stand out what do you think they've taught you about your own life and yeah it's a really challenging question that's very much 
part of being in medicine for a long time, just with particularly with patients that you get to know for a long time. You know, these are patients who come and then stay with you or die, or stay with you until they die. So again, that's another whole aspect of medicine, particularly with children. So the third transplant we did here at the Austin in 1988, following her life, she's now married with three or four children of her own. Is, you know, it's in, that's an extraordinary process to see um, a child who would have died within 12 months and being introduced to her children. It's extremely meaningful. And um, and I just another little anecdote about her. I remember she was aged about 16 or 17. She went to a debutante ball and she came to the clinic with a photograph of her and her mum in her debutante dress. And they were discussing because she and her mum had made the dress and they were chatting to our nursing staff saying, you know, they were all admiring the dress. But the really crucial thing about that photograph was that she was there at all. You know, going to a debutante ball, she would be dead. So some extraordinarily meaningful um, experiences like that. Adult patients who are out doing normal things. We get occasionally get Christmas cards from someone who's, you know, achieving things, doing things, leaping, you know, just even just normal things. Um, incredibly appreciative of the extended life that people have. And that's what makes it so incredibly rewarding. And I think the members of our team who like transplantation have this immediate gratification and reward from just seeing the end result of that hard work. And there are some extraordinary survival stories where patients literally clinging to life by a thread who a year or so later are out there, you know, dancing, traveling, you know, Enjoying life. (laughs) (laughs) So I think probably, uh, you know, that's probably the most dramatic and most rewarding aspect of it. Do you think that that's given you more perspective on on your own life and and how you approach your life day to day? Well, I think the other side of it, of course, is we see all the donors, people who have died suddenly and unexpectedly. And so counterpoint to this is being aware that it's very easy to die. And and life is extremely precious. and we go from one hospital where there's usually unexpected death and you bring a liver back to the Austin where the family are full of hope about new life. It's an extraordinary contrast um, and reminds us of how fickle life could be. And, um, and just on a side note, as a surgeon, uh, it is a great shame to take those organs with us when we die because within 30 minutes or so of our heart stopping, those organs are pretty much non-usable. And, uh, and just on a ut- utilitarian process, they're such beautiful organs, it's a great shame not to reuse them and recycle them. So I kind of have a very pragmatic view of how difficult it is to think about being an organ donor. It's an incredibly beneficial thing for recipients and, uh, and those organs aren't going to be any use otherwise. Another one is kind of, about working under pressure and working under di- in difficult circumstances, time pressure, um, other sorts of pressure. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about maybe how you manage or how, how you work in high pressure situations? Yeah, that's I, again, that's another area of surgery. I think you decide whether you like that kind of situation. There's really nothing worse than being somewhere late at night, finger in a hole, and you're thinking, how do I get out of trouble? How do I get out of this? Um, there's situations like that that make you decide maybe I don't want to do this sort of surgery. Because there is surgery, of course, where you're not largely dealing with life-threatening situations. But 
Um, again, it's one of those things you, you end up in that situation and at some point you have to decide whether you want to stick with this. And I often say to the junior guys coming through, whenever you're in somewhere really hazardous in part of the operation, you really want to think, what's the worst thing that could happen at this moment? And have a plan for that. So you've already, you're assuming that's going to happen and you've got a sort of plan in place of how you might cope with it. Because you really don't want to be somewhere where you haven't got a backup plan uh, or call for help. Um, it's So I think what you're saying is really important. You will be stressed. If you take on certain types of surgery, there will be times when you get very stressed. And I think it's just the realization that it's going to happen. Um, and you need to cope with it. You need to debrief afterwards, someone to talk to. Um, and hopefully another surgeon who's been through it and give you advice. And I've often said to our surgeons, if you really are got a challenging operation, you know it's going to be changing, get another consultant in with you. So it's a consultant, consultant-led surgery. And that is often incredibly beneficial. You're sort of spreading the load and the decision-making. But that's, it, it is part of surgery. It's part of making mistakes. It's part of being responsible. And coping with stress is very much part of a surgical career. How do you like to cope with stress? How do you manage it? Well, I like the music. We've played a lot of music. We used to play tapes, then we moved to CDs, and now, of course, it's digital. Um, it was CDs it was much better because you had to bring your CDs, but now everyone's got their own music. So if you don't get in early, you've got to listen to someone else's music. <laughs> so I think the music's really important, and you can get the right sort of music at the right time. If it's 3 a.m. in the morning, you need something to wake you up. You know, uh, you need closing music, a little more subtle. and uh, so, you, uh, so I think music's very important. And maybe perhaps outside of theatre, how do you, you know, you're, with managing your time and all those things? Oh, you... well, I've, I've got a couple of gar- biggish garden that I kind of muck around with. I've, I've actually just helped renovate my youngest daughter's kitchen and laundry in a little house they've got. And that's been quite fun to do. And I've got three coming up, four grandchildren who are a lot of fun to be around. Uh, also, also, I guess, in, in terms of reflection, when you when you look back on your career and it's it's a very decorated career. You've, you've been involved with a lot of pioneering people within the transplantation field, but I guess even in, in medicine and surgery, generally speaking, um, what what are the values that maybe if in the, the two or three key values that you think you have or maybe the two or three principles that you stick to that have helped you to become successful and, and lead you to where you are today? Well, one I, I think one was a little bit of serendipity. Opportunities may have just come up in front of you and without a lot of planning and it might be something you didn't plan on um, and just being prepared for that. Um, med- medicine, you're dealing with people, so you have to like people if you're dealing with people. And I've always enjoyed interaction with the patients and commitment and involvement with them. So I think that's been a huge part of my working life and why I've liked surgery. I think it's belie- you have to believe in what you're doing and think that you are doing something that is beneficial and and helping the patient. And that's a very important thing. And I often discuss that with the patient, saying that we have to feel very confident that we are doing the right thing for you, that the advice we're giving you. Because if we, if you do die on the operating table, we want to feel that the decision had been properly thought through. In terms of, I guess, a slightly more academic question, you know, with with liver transplantation and or transplantation surgery in general now that... Um, we're starting to develop the technology to, to print, you know, organs and, and um, yeah, maybe it's sort of you can kind of circumnavigate, if you like, the challenge of requiring donors. Where do you see your field going and what does that innovation, you know, how do you interpret that in- innovation? 
in terms of you know tissue printing technology? No, it's a really good question, uh, Jason. I think the, the future. I'm sure we look back and say this: this were the dark ages. You know, we used to take organs out and replace them, and I'm sure for a huge number of diseases that you know that will no longer be necessary. And I think the future will be in molecular biology. You know, so what we're doing is very primitive in that sense, um, but. I think it's going to be 20 plus years. So for anyone involved in transplantation at the moment, it's going to be, there's still a career there. And it, it, it's going to be extraordinary if you could generate something that could take over the functions of a liver or hepatocytes. But I believe that's where the future will lie. And uh, surgery is going to shrink. Same perhaps with cancer surgery. And uh, because certainly in my working life, surgical procedures have changed dramatically. When I was starting out in surgery, you know, peptic ulcer disease was a huge surgical risk and workload, and it's completely evaporated with the management. We, we spent hours working out which surgical operation you'd do for gastric and duodenal ulcers, and now it's in the historical record. You know, Nobody does it anymore. In fact, occasionally the younger surgeons will ask, well, what are we going to do with this old-fashioned problem? We need an old-fashioned surgeon who knows something about this, something called a highly selective vagotomy. Um, so surgery will change, and I'm sure that Transplantation will change, and it'll be looked back as, as a relic from the past. Um, and uh, people will tell stories about the horrendous operations that were done, and that are no longer needed. Yeah, I think that's particularly, if you like, timely because of what's going on at the moment. I think, as you said at the start, um, even now with with COVID, and it's sort of prompting a lot of reflection and, and rethinking about the way that we do things. I think there's a parallel. Oh, it sure is. It's, I think you probably notice the students in terms of teaching and uh, clinics, I mean, just the delivery of service, um, multidisciplinary meetings, it's, it's extraordinary and would never have happened without this because we've had access to this technology, but no one's really wanted to get their teeth into it because it's too damn difficult. And once we've been made to do it, I think it's going to permanently alter how we deliver the service and and we're just really starting out on this. So it's, it's quite exciting. It's the, the last question is um, how far or how much do you attribute of you know, where you are today and the things that you've achieved? How much of that do you attribute to the serendipity of um, the opportunities that have come along the way? And how much of that do you attribute to your own hard work and, and dedication? I think it looks a little bit of both. I, I was very lucky that I got to do what I wanted to do and got to do it and train with very good people. And then the serendipitous part was a job sort of turned up while I was doing that. So I think for younger surgeons, trainees, medical trainees, getting the best training you can get and being well-trained, that in itself is almost a guarantee of a position. And uh, if you can direct yourself to the best position you can get, the best training, the best mentors you can get, you, you'll certainly end up with a I mean, when you think about it, you start out in medicine, it's going to be 13 or 14 or 15 years before you get a consultant appointment. The only way to get to that level is to put 14 years. You're in a very select group. And if you can combine that with a good personality. So um, lastly, I think probably the other thing that's important is personality. If you're going to be working in a team, that's a very important component. You have to be able to be a team player and a team member. And I think everyone knows that. That's very obvious. But a lot of subsequent positions and appointments will go to people that are thought to fit into the existing team. So it doesn't necessarily go to the person who got top in the class. Uh, it'll go to the person that is felt to complement the team that's there and maybe provide some extra interpersonal skills that maybe don't exist. In terms of your own 
personal development and maybe you know the things that you like about yourself the things you don't like about yourself have you done anything in the past to to change those things okay (laughs) that's very very reflective um certainly in terms of management i've had to adjust to formally being a much more in tune with what management is about i've always been a bit iconoclastic and idiosyncratic and as i say we were crossing a corner so we didn't have to interact too much with the hospital systems if we wanted to do something we pretty much just went and did it um so i think having to deal with systems and process organization and structures is something that i've really had to develop and take an interest in and as i said if i was going through now i would probably almost essential to do a, some sort of management degree in addition to medicine i think on on that note we might wrap up the show i think it's you know thinking about you know even for me just sitting here like you know i think there's a lot of parallels in terms of you grew up in small isolated part of the world um and then you know now you've worked around the world in the same way that liver transplantation is a small isolated part initially of of medicine and surgery and now it's become um something really massive and touched a lot of people so um and it's been an honor and a privilege to like have have you on the show and, and hear some of your thoughts and experiences so so on behalf of all the listeners um thank you for sharing some of your stories and We hope that it provides a bit of guidance to people who are listening. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode of the Time Out podcast. If you'd like to hear more from us in the future, please consider subscribing to the show on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms. If you'd like to contact us or have any thoughts that you'd like to share, please do so via our Facebook page, the Surgical Student Society of Melbourne. The Surgical Students Society of Melbourne would like to thank our two major sponsors for 2020, the Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their ongoing support. Please find in the show description a link for the Department of Surgery's e-learning module entitled Pathways to Career Progression, as well as two links from MIPS for students. The Surgical Students Society of Melbourne would also like to thank Michelle Andrews, who is the co-host of the Shameless podcast, for her support in helping us to put this program together. You can find the Shameless podcast on Apple and Spotify podcasts as well. This episode was edited by Karen Gunatilaka and Alex Grogan. Special thanks to Jenny Pham and Rashan Kari for their help in organizing today's guests. My name's Jason, and I hope that you'll tune in again soon.